Well, hello, dreamers. Welcome back to another episode of the Door Whipping Dreams podcast. I'm your host. <coughs> oh, sorry, Maddie Limerick. And this week, join me on a jolly holiday as our guest, Meredith Doyle, and I take a deep dive into the crown jewel of Walt Disney's career, Mary Poppins. During his career, one of Walt's greatest gifts was being a story collector. And the origin of today's episode is deeply rooted in this ability. Like many decisions in his career, his children and family were at the center of it. Their love of a series of books about a stern British nanny who takes children on wild adventures pushed him to acquire the rights for Mary Poppins' books by Australian author P.L. Travers. He would begin this process in the late 1930s, and it would take him over 20 years to get P.L. to relent and sell him the film rights to her book series. Our story to the international classic begins in Australia in 1899, with the birth of Helen Lyndon Goff, who would eventually go by the name P.L. Travers. She began her professional life as an actress and journalist, but by the time she moved to London and began working for the British government during World War II, she had already published the first Poppins novel. With a canon that would include over eight books that would be published over a period of 50 years, the novels center around the Banks family at number 17 Cherry Tree Lane in London, where a stern British nanny arrives to take care of this rambunctious family. Inspired by the tradition of stern and vain British nannies, along with her own Aunt Sass, who stepped in to take care of Travers, her siblings, and her mother after the death of Travers' father due to complications with alcohol addiction. Travers would become known as a very mysterious woman when discussing her personal life, and it would show over time that she had many complicated relationships with men and women throughout her lifetime. Ones that even led her to adopt a child while in her late 40s at the recommendation of an astrologer. At his request, she was to look for a set of twins, but only take one, and this would eventually lead to a very complicated relationship with her own son when he would learn about the family he was taken from by his twin on his 17th birthday. Travers would spend most of her later years traveling the globe studies and mysticism. These are things that I didn't actually expect when I started doing research on this story and became very sad to know why we don't know more about Travers' side of the Mary Poppins story. It is notated by Biography.com writer Brad Witter that when Travers eventually had a change of heart and permitted the film rights to Disney in 1961, it was less motivated by Disney's apparent charm, but more by money. The royalties of her series had begun to dwindle in the early 60s, and Disney reportedly offered her $100,000, which would be more than $800,000 today, plus 5% of the movie's multi-million dollar gross earnings. It was also under this stipulation that Travers would be permitted to consult on the film and would come to Burbank during its filming. With the rights from Travers' set, and with the Sherman brothers on tap for an original score, it would be time to find their cast. Though originally tapped for Haley Mills and Mary Martin, it would be Julie Andrews who lands the role of the British nanny and make her film debut for the Disney picture. Yes, this was actually the first film to star the iconic legend and true queen Julie Andrews. Now, Andrews had quite the prolific theater career before this and propelled towards the role when she was passed over for the role of Eliza Doolittle in the upcoming movie adaptation of My Fair Lady, in which Andrews had starred in in London and New York. 
The role of Eliza Doolittle eventually went to Audrey Hepburn, but the two actresses would go head-to-head just a few years later at the Golden Globe Awards, and Andrews would take home the gold for her portrayal of Mary Poppins. Andrews would also be the only one of the two nominated for an Oscar for their, perfor- their portrayal of their roles. Now, while his cockney will go down as stuff of terrible legend, with a glimmering smile and a dancy swagger, Dick Van Dyke would come to screen as the chimney sweeper. Though originally Disney felt he was too young for the role, Dick Van Dyke finally won him over in a screen test, and this would lead to one of the most iconic film duos of Andrews and Van Dyke to be born. In the most Disney of ways, as the script development started, many changes were being made to the original story that made Travers well nervous. And while the novel takes place in the 1930s, the team unequivocally decided that it must take place in the 19-teens. And some of the more mysterious aspects of the original book gave way to a more cheerful and Disney-fied tone. Travers actually became known for her mantra of no, 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 while on set for the film in Burbank. And while Disney would concede to some of Travers' requests, most of her qualms went unaddressed and unacknowledged. To the point that when the premiere of the film happened, she was said to have broken down in tears saying, Oh God, what have they done? She then vowed to never let Disney make another film from the British nanny again, well in her lifetime. Despite Travers's complaints, the rest of the world was in love with Mary Poppins, the British nanny, and the proof is in the dollar signs. The film earned $31 million in North America alone in theater rentals during its initial run. The film was re-released theatrically in 1973 in honor of Walt Disney Productions' 50th anniversary, earned another estimated $9 million in North American theater rentals then, along with a 1980 release that would bring $102 million in North American releases alone. The film would rank 20th of the most popular sound films of the 20th century in the UK and the US. It was also said to be the most profitable film of 1965, earning a net profit of $2.8 million, which by today's standards would be just over $230 million. This profit would purchase the land for the Florida project that would eventually become Walt Disney World, and it also funded the Disney monorail system. The safety system for the monorail itself is called MAPO, in honor of Mary Poppins. This is just such a Disney thing. While this film would become known as Walt's crowning achievement of film, it would be the only film to garner an Oscar nomination for Best Picture in his lifetime. There is something a little more difficult to unpack with this story, though. In 2013, Disney released Saving Mr. Banks, where we get a fictionalized version of the story of P.L. Travers and Walt Disney, while they created and collaborated on Mary Poppins, starring modern icons Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks. This movie does what Disney does best, It tells an easier to digest and a less accurate version of the historical relationship. And while this content could be its own episode, I feel like we need to talk about it now. In a 2019 article for Sci-Fi Wire, How Disney Made Mary Poppins an Icon by Ignoring Her Creator, writer Kaylee Donaldson posts an interesting question. When we talk about Poppins, we have to balance the idea of dual ownership. When looking at most Disney titles, they are age-old stories from several different cultures. Most people connect the stories first and foremost with Disney. But with Poppins, though, who's the true owner? The woman who wrote the source material or Disney, the king of synergy who redefined other people's work into products for a corporate brand. Just because the people connected to Andrews and the iconic 
ness of the Sherman Brothers' music, we can't disregard the lineage of the source material. For me, as a lifelong fan, I think this is a pretty simple question to answer. Some of you may say both, which is part true if we look at these as two separate bodies of work. But this movie could never exist without the novels. But most writers tend to give up all creative control to his story when the film rights are sold. And even though at the time he was widely known for animation, it's evident the kind of story that is going to be told in a Disney property. And while I agree that more of Travers's concerns should have been cared more attention, seeing her concerns, I can't agree that it would have been a better movie with these changes. I will be discussing these with our guest Meredith Doyle later in the show, so don't you worry. Donaldson also had this to say about the Disney monolith. Walt Disney so successfully performed authorship of his studio's output that many customers and consumers thought that Walt drew the cartoons himself. Now this is done by design. When building a recognized Hollywood studio, as a modern example, you would never call Frozen a Jennifer Lee film, even though maybe we should. You call it a Disney film, which even though Walt died 52 years before the film's release, it's hard to be a Mary Poppins fan, which I vehemently am, and overlook how its existence is built upon a very powerful man stripping a woman of her authorial intent and the identity of her work. I know this is a lot to unpack, but love for Disney is a flawed and sometimes problematic thing. It's not bad to love the work and the legacy, but I do think we're at a point where we have to discuss the bad that comes with the good. I know at this point you all have a lot to respond to, so why don't you head over to our Facebook and follow the post for Mary Poppins and give me some feedback on today's episode. Now kick your knees up, step in time, because we'll be right back after this. Welcome back, dreamers. Today, I am joined with someone who I am so excited to have you all meet. She's about as close to Mary Poppins as I can get. So please join me in welcoming Meredith Doyle. Meredith, hi. I'm so happy you could be on the show today. Oh, my God. What a compliment. I know. <laughs> Good. Well, Meredith, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and kind of what part Disney has played in your life so far? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, I am a young, aspiring actress in New York and other places. Um, Maddie and I met working on a couple of shows um, in Allentown, PA, which include How to Succeed in Business and uh, My Fair Lady. Um, in terms of Disney, you know, I'm not... I wouldn't consider myself a Disney buff by any means. Like I, I've enjoyed mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, the typical Disney princess things and stuff in my lifetime. And, you know, I, I, there was a time when I could quote a lot of the songs and stuff <laughs> like that and the dialogue and stuff. I've, I, I wouldn't say I've stepped away, but I don't necessarily have like a ton of Disney knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, but Mary Poppins is like, my golden girl. I just, I, I don't know. I feel like from a very young age, I, I related to the, um, sort of no nonsense, really sensible attitude she had mixed with the whimsy. I, I didn't really connect with a lot of characters that were really like flimsy and ingenue as much. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I, I just like, I loved, I don't know. I loved everything about her. I also just loved everything about Julie Andrews. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I also like, you know, 
of my survival job in the city, amongst many things, is nannying. And, you know, I've been a nanny for a couple of years now for a variety of families. But, you know, there's so many, like, I don't know. I, I think that there's something really special about sharing magic with children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just love the way she does it in such a hmm, respectful and whimsical way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. She's, she's wonderfully rounded. Yeah, wonderfully rounded. And it's it's those got those great moments of where she has the children go to the wildest side of their imagination and then later she's like, Well, I'm far too respectable to have ever been in a horse race, Michael. Yeah, and that is the funniest thing. I, I had it on with my fiance this morning, and um, he hadn't seen it in years. And the first thing he said was, oh, my God, Dick Van Dyke is in this movie. And I was like, yeah, of course Dick Van Dyke yeah, is in this movie. of course movie. Dick Van Dyke but is then in this movie. I, I, we, were, we got to that scene where she kind of, like, gaslights them a little yeah. bit about oh, the, um, their experience in the park. And I was like... I, I had forgotten how sharp of a contrast that was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, I don't know, that part's a little odd. But I do, but that, I think that kind of calls attention to like the, her, her love of structure and magic, which yep. is such a delicious combination. <laughs> well, and, and for the time period that this was written and like came from, the, like the idea of what the British nanny was, was this very kind of archetypal thing that like mm-hmm. there was that very rigid, systematic version of what a nanny was to be, which is, you know, what Mr. Banks was looking for. Um, and then, you know, the children have an idea of what a caretaker is and the Mary Poppins is both of those things. Sure, um, absolutely. I know for me, it was one of the earliest films I remember us owning at home. Um, and it, it, so between this and sound of music, Julie Andrews was like the grandmother I wanted to have, or like the, this, this, this woman who I was just like, Oh, who is she? She's so magical and wonderful. Um, and so that's, that's just for, for me, which was funny older when I was watching a like 2020 with her in like 1998 or 99. And, uh, she cursed and I went, what, what? Oh, no oh no 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 and it was of course after it was after the accident with her surgery um Mm -hmm. and like she'd done victor victoria which i did not know at the time and so it's the side Victoria was after the surgery before the surgery i was gonna say no no no. so like surgery well yeah the movie was movie was 80s the musical was 90s the surgery was then because of victor victoria um but that was the first time i knew any of those things and i was like oh that's one of the times i went oh there's a person outside of the characters the person is playing yeah, but she absolutely. just like Mary Poppins around my house is just like a, it's like a it's a go to thing and like I, mm-hmm. uh, every year I always try to get my mom a little a little um, Mary Poppins something um, and so this was dubbed as Walt Disney's crowning achievement in his lifetime. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, I, I you know I think that there's a lot of. You know, earlier you used the word staying power. Um, I I think that, you know, it it kind of is in the most wonderful way is not super dramaturgically accurate. Oh, of course Um, not. And I I don't mean that as like a, a, you know, a bad thing for the movie. I think it actually serves it in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of Disney movies are 
obviously wonderful, have really memorable music and really, you know, pretty straightforward but meaningful and memorable Mm storylines. I think the thing that makes Mary Poppins arguably his crowning achievement is that it has all of those things, but this, like, very enticing, mysterious underside that leaves a lot of room for the viewer to kind of, in a way, like decide what the character is thinking or project what they think mm-hmm. the character's thinking. Like, you know, I was, like mm-hmm. I said, I was watching it again this morning and I, I'm astonished by how many shots of Julie are her not really saying anything, but mm-hmm. her just kind of like emoting, like the one where she, um, is giving the kids the medicine and she says, Ooh, rum punch, um, satisfying. And she has this moment where she like, takes a little extra nip of it and then like mm-hmm. licks her finger mm-hmm. and it's like you know you don't really see a lot of Disney characters mm-hmm. doing anything like taking a little extra nip of a rum punch and it's mm-hmm. like I think that there's the complexity of the character and the um, I don't know the ability for the viewer to kind of like really there's so much space for the viewer to look into their world and find I don't know, really magical things about it that they can apply to their own life. And to, you know, I think that, I think that one thing Disney does really well is kind of like connecting families through music and story. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when you have a story that's about a family that has this rift that is brought together by music and story Mm -hmm. and, you know, a little bit of magic. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's kind of Disney's overarching. If we're going to say they have a mission statement, you know, I think that's as pretty, that's as close as you're going to get. Yeah. I think it's, it was family friendly in a new way of that. It wasn't just trying to get generations to uh, understand each other or try and tell this like ethereal story of families being separated. This is a family that had literally separated itself because of class and because of what was expected societally. And those are the things that were, will always be true no matter what time you set in a film. Um, but yeah, it's this thing of like showing that like, well, children sometimes need to understand their parents and parents need to understand their children. And there's always going to be that riff. And there are all these beautiful, beautifully magical things about Disney films that I think this movie takes and amps up to a thousand. Mm. Um, like the beautiful combination of animation and live action. And it didn't yes. feel like other films of the time that had done it, even some Disney films, they're... There was still such a disconnect, but like that moment where uh, Mary Poppins smells the flowers and they become butterflies and she yes. looks up to see the butterflies, you you feel so connected to the space, even though it's completely animated and, you know, they filmed it on a soundstage mm-hmm. with, with nothing there with them. Um, and it kind of amps up this like what children, what the perfection of what children want and what adults wish they still had that magic. And it's that idea mm-hmm. of telling adults that they don't need to lose all of that childhood imagination and telling children to hold on to that, but also that some things have to change the older you get. And that's just kind of part of life. Um, And there's just, you know, and there's just such a little bit of sadness 
that I love uh, talking about Julie not having to say anything. There are several moments of like when she primps herself in the mirror and smiles and then turns around and her reflection stays there and her reflection does the same thing of the knowing there's just the knowing look, mm-hmm. the knowing smile. And yes. then that moment that's so sad at the end where she's leaving and she knows it's her time to go. Yeah. And she she has this beautiful mix of like sadness but like contentment because she knows whoever she is. We've never gotten that answer. We never will. Um, no. But like she did her job and it's time to move on to the next family. Now in the book, she would continue to return to the Banks home time and right, time again. Right. Um, but you know, what's interesting is I didn't realize that the last Mary Poppins novel was published in 1984. The, the Are eighth, you serious? Yeah, yeah. Um, <gasps> yeah. And that's online. Please correct me, uh, our listeners. I'm sure all of you are waiting on bated <laughs> breath to correct things, but that's what we love about you all. Um, but yeah, you brought up kind of the dramaturgy is never really there, and that's kind of what Disney's brand is. Um, Mm -hmm. I read in an article that uh, someone was referencing that like all of these stories mostly, especially the fairy tales, have existed for centuries. But if you Mm -hmm. ask people which version they know, they're going to say the Disney version. Like that's that's the version everybody knows. And um, and that's what they connect it with. And so even though the Poppins books had been very successful, though by the time the the film rights were secured, they were not as successful um, mm-hmm. or they weren't as, you know, in the pop culture. A lot of people equate Mary Poppins with this film and then go, oh, wait, there are books. Okay. 100%. I did that um, as a kid. Oh, I did as well. I had no mm-hmm. idea. And then a few years ago, I bought my dad several of the books because I was like, well, he's a reader. And now after doing this, I go, well, I really want to read these books. Have you ever had the pleasure of kind of getting to read the books? No, not at all. And you want to know what? I had the exact same experience. So I was, when I was younger, my mother was a doll collector and I was a doll collector. Um, and my mom had a Mary Poppins madam alexander Mm. and she like gifted it to me when i was a young girl and she was like this is mary poppins and i said it can't be mary poppins like it doesn't look anything like mary poppins you know like it's not even close to the movie like somebody tricked you it's not mary poppins and she was like no it's mary poppins like you know they have books right like this is mary poppins based off the book and that rocked my world i could not believe that they were books um so no i've never read them But I I also, like, I think I've never read them in an effort to maintain this kind of, like, really, Mm -hmm. I don't know, magical, rosy image I have of the movie itself. It's kind of, you know, I... Mary Poppins is not one of those movies that I, like, burnt the the VHS to the ground. It was more of one that I, like, I held very sacred, and it it wasn't Mm -hmm. something we watched all the time. It was... I'm one of five kids... We did not agree to watch Mary Poppins. We agreed to watch, you know, we agreed to watch The Lion King. We agreed to watch The Little Mermaid. Um, of course. So, you know, I, I, Mary Poppins was something that I kind of like really fell in love with by myself. Um, so I, you know, and the books that I was reading as a kid, I was also reading with my sister, who's only 14 months apart from me. So like mm-hmm. we would read together. My dad would read to us like the first four Harry Potter books were read to us. You know what I mean? Um, 
So no, I haven't read them. But I, especially since Mary Poppins Returns came out, mm-hmm. I, I've been kind of thinking of picking them up, honestly. But yeah. again, it's I I don't know how I feel about kind of like adding that to the canon of what mm-hmm. I think of it. Mm-hmm. Having said that, though, you know. I love the musical and I love Mm -hmm. how different the musical feels from the movie. Although some Mm -hmm. of the things like, I don't know, I'm kind of a purist about supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I, while I appreciate what they did with it in the musical and I, I I think the choreography is amazing. uh, This, the whole scene in supercal is not, what I it's, it wasn't the movie <laughs> understandable <laughs> so like, and we'll I wanted the movie <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the musical in just a little bit but I think yeah. this is a good way to kind of segue and talk about something that a lot of people don't talk about with this film and kind of the way we want to remember Walt Disney and while he was this magical dreamer there was you know he was a businessman and he did mm. a lot of things and like there was even a point where people um, assumed that Walt was drawing all of the, you know, he was drawing all of the cartoons, he was doing all of these things, yeah. but really it was just this giant thing. The relationship between Travers and Disney uh, has kind of gone into infamy, and people, you know, it's talked about what is and what isn't true, and it even inspired a, a Disney film in 2013 called Saving Mr. Banks, um, where we get a very Disney-fied retelling of the story of Walt Disney and P.L. Travers. Um And while in many ways Travers was unmoving about a lot of the changes that she wanted and things that were happening and that didn't make her happy, it's hard to see what was done to the source material to me in a way. Because, like, again, I haven't read it, but there's Mm -hmm. so many kind of people that talk about it now more freely. Um, And uh, a journalist for Sci-Fi Wire uh, named Kaylee Donaldson uh, in 2018 presented this quandary to me that I think is really interesting. And she said, it's hard to be a Mary Poppins fan, which I am and overlook its uh, existence is built upon a very powerful man stripping a woman of her authorial intent and the identity of her own work Um, Mm. and so you know it's one of those things that like I love this film so much but going through and kind of I mean we know this is what happens every time you adapt something else lots of changes are made and a lot of times almost nothing is held of the original content. What are what are some of your thoughts on this? I mean, I think that is an extremely compelling argument. I, I, I The truth is, just because I haven't read the book, like, I feel like I, I can't say whether or not, like, Walt did a good job of, like, maintaining her character mm-hmm. um, and maintaining, like, what she had intended with the series. Mm-hmm. Um it's hard because I think that, you know, with the license to kind of reimagine something from a book to a movie or a movie to a musical or a poem to you know, a play, you know, whatever it is, it's like you're kind of, you know, gifting, giving, giving permission, whatever you want to call it, you're kind of leaving this space for reinterpretation. You're leaving mm-hmm. space for... Um, you know, for a change. So, so the nostalgic part of me doesn't want mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. think that, you know, 
something as wonderful as Mary Poppins like may not be exactly what the writer had intended and kind of right. transformed into something that got out of her hands or slipped away. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, I, when did the movie come out? 63, 61? Mm-hmm. 64. Um, 64, think, yeah. right. You know, I think that they, obviously it was a really challenging time for women and it still is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it regrettably does not surprise me that, you know, that's a part of this storyline. But yeah. I, I think that the truth is, like, if we're looking at any any piece of work, like any film, any book, any musical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you're not, you know, up until even, you know, now, like, women aren't getting the credit for what they... Absolutely. You know, what they're participating is like, I, you know, I don't know if you read the article the other day that Mindy Kaling, when The Office was nominated for all those Emmys, like they asked her to like remove herself as a producer credit. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it's I think that like the sad truth is it's probably true that V.L. Travers was, you know, kind of given the short end of the stick. But mm-hmm. again, like. Without having read the books, without having that really strong knowledge of the series, mm-hmm. like I feel like I don't have the authority to kind of make right. a judgment call on that. Right. Well, and I, you know, I agree with that. And it's also hard when, you know, her life inspired these books, mm-hmm. and um, she was raised by her aunt who her father was an alcoholic and passed away, and so her great aunt took care of her. And her siblings and her mother. And so she had a very tumultuous relationship with her. And that character directly inspired Mary Poppins. And there's also a sensibility of being a person of a certain class, especially in Britain at the time. Absolutely. You know, pre-World War One or pre-World War Two, post-World War II. You know, it's very difficult. And um, But... Uh, yeah, it's hard, and especially looking through, I'm about to outline kind of all of her, well, most of the qualms that I found um, of hers, mm-hmm. and look at them, because to her, the story was so important to her in so many ways, and for probably sure. very a lot of people of the time, but I think what the kind of Disney did, and by... Essentially, it's it's a weird idea. Is it is it entertainment colonialism? Is our artistic colonialism when sure. you know we're you got two colonial nations? But like that idea that like yeah. you know the Americans came in and took this very British novel and made it a little more American in ways because like you know we had we had done the the mid century post war so you know the mothers were staying at home but there were nannies and there were these things that even for the mm-hmm. middle class um so i think you know uh, we'll talk through some of her qualms and sure uh the uh, it apparently drove her to tears at the premiere watching this film like and she wow. said oh god what have they done um and it's like many stories. There seem to be tons of accounts and accounts of accounts of accounts. But this is kind of what I've collected from several different things. Her largest was that the movie was set in the 19... Or the book was set in the 1930s. And they moved it to the 19-teens. Which is a huge jump. We're pre-World War One yeah, at this absolutely. point. Um, thing, And because this is directly connected, they made Mrs. Banks a suffragette. Which is mm-hmm. the only thing I have... You know, I never had issues with. And I thought it was fun and interesting as a child. But then I saw the musical on Broadway and I went, oh. 
that doesn't actually help that character. She's not fleshed out. But I guess yeah. also Mr. Banks and Mrs. Banks aren't supposed to be fully fleshed out. They're supposed to be archetypes of the adults who could be taking care of their children but are ignoring their children anyway. Yeah, and um, I think too, like if you if you I think that if you add a lot of really intense layers of depth to the parents, especially in the beginning of the movie, you don't get the payoff at the end when they're making the connection. I think that that is a very strategic move on the part of Disney or Travers, whatever you want to say. Yeah. So, and also I, you know, they couldn't have known it now, but now that we have Mary Poppins returns and that was able to be set in the 1930s -hmm. and there was just this kind of, beautiful sadness to it because they were post World War One, about to engage in World War Two. There mm-hmm. was just a loss and that movie's about grieving and kind of how yes. we move on from grief. Um and we wouldn't have been able to get that jump because I think if they'd then done it in the 1950s, it was a very different place. The world was sure. very, very different. Um, so something else she didn't like was the animated portions, the cartoons she she absolutely hated. And I have a hard time connecting with that because I, Jolly Holiday is just beautiful it's one of my yeah it's one of my no i'll agree with you uh, you know i'll agree some people feel that maybe they went on a little too long but they also were looking you know from a child's perspective you would you would want those animated portions to stay a little too long because that's what you would want as a kid you would want to live in this this richness um and she apparently also didn't like the bank's home itself like what it looked like how bright it was all these things and again that's a you know, uh, a 1950s, 60s aesthetic kind of re-looking at, um, you know, these row homes, you know, even though they're beautifully upper yeah. class, these row homes of Britain at the time. Um, now, something I think is funny, she disliked how attractive Mary Poppins was. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, knowing that it was her great aunt, so she was an older woman. And yeah. when they when she kind of describes Aunt Sass and hearing her aunt, I think of Nanny McPhee, actually, which, you know, I came after. Yeah. And so she was a little this kind of very harder woman who didn't care about her appearance. And Mary Poppins is actually very vain. She's yes. a very, like, beautifully vain woman. Um, but it's, you know, she's practically perfect. So that idea that maybe mm-hmm. her vanity is what makes her not quite, you know, not quite perfect. Um, Well, in an interview with Julie Andrews that they did recently, um, Julie talks about how when they were developing her character, they loved the idea of Mary having like a slightly, and she used the word wicked side. Yeah. Um, And they talked about how like, you know, it was a really intentional choice for her not to wear bloomers Mm -hmm. during um, uh, the chimney sweep dance. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't know, I think it was refreshing that she was kind of a little bit, like, sharp and knew she was all Mm -hmm. that. Well, and also I think because Mary Poppins is this magical other, this magical unknown, um, she is absolutely literally above the societal norms and expectations of women but also it's a commentary especially switching it into the 19 teens of this is when the expectations of women were much different so you know it kind of flips Mm -hmm. that on its head a little bit now this is her next qualm i think is heavily alienating for her because she completely hated dick van dyke 
She hated his casting. She hated, now granted, his cockney is the worst thing that's happened to film ever. It's a national it's, disaster. It's, it's the, but it's also a national treasure. It is. <laughs> it's a national disaster in the same way that Nick Cage is a national treasure kind of deal. Like it is. It's. It's so, but like, it's so charming. And he's just, he's another one that there's nothing wrong with any way that he performs this Bert. And I just, it's, he's so delightful. And the fact that that man is still tap dancing in his 90s, like, I'm not even going to make it to 90. And this man is... Uh, My fiance uh, said this morning, he said to me this morning, when he was shocked to find out that Dick Van Dyke was in Mary mm -hmm. Poppins, he said... Isn't he dead? And I said, no. he is not dead. He is very much alive. Very he's much alive. So but very he's, alive. He's from that generation where, like, technically they shouldn't be living because they all smoke and pickled themselves with vodka. Yes. But, like, Carol Channing was, like, 98 when she died. She was still doing the Easter bonnet every year in New York. Like, I, I don't just, it's, it's something about this generation. They just had this zest. That is Absolutely. just amazing. And I can't, especially knowing a lot of the other actors at the time. Now, this is a time where no one really knew what went into the casting process. And now you can get a full, covering all of my Disney Renaissance films, you get an in-depth look at who, who was going to do what. Like, we just did Hercules and this idea of, like... 25 men were called in for Hades and we know yeah. who every single one of them are because right. you know the internet but like mm -hmm. then I couldn't find a lot of other accounts of who else they were looking for or if like it was just Dick Van Dyke from the beginning and nobody else um I like uh, to know, imagine that it was Dick Van Dyke from the beginning. Me, I just, me too. He, he has that same sort of, you know, like unexplainable magic quality about him mm -hmm. that I think Julie did. And mm -hmm. their chemistry is just so sensational. I'm, I'm, I, I can't, I'm actually shocked to hear that she did not like Dick Van Dyke's casting. Yeah. That's I really... Mean, it, it, it might have been being a British person too and having like the worst possible British dialect opposite also Julie sure. Andrews. <laughs> Julie Andrews, whose RP is just ridiculously yes. perfect. I mean, Absolutely. being a British person, you know, that uh, yeah. it's so hard. And for me, the last one of her qualms that I'm going to talk about cuts me to the core the most. She hated the score by the Sherman Brothers. Oh, God. And That's like, a nice I just. Like, I, I just, the, the score is so delightful and so transcendent. Like, I cried as a child and I cry as an adult. If someone does feed the birds in a real nice oh, way, no. I'm inconsolable for an hour. Like, I just. I know. It's, well, I'm like Super Cali and Jolly Holiday. And even like, um, I Love to Laugh, which didn't make it into the musical, but like, Ed Wynn's performance as Uncle yes. Albert, just all of these moments that like, you know, we'll talk about Mary Poppins Returns in a little bit, but for me, that score had no chance to, to stack up against the score by yeah. the Sherman Brothers. And I believe one of the Sherman Brothers is still alive. Um, I believe it's Richard Jeez. Sherman is still alive. Yeah. I mean, this wow. generation, they're, <laughs> they they're the greatest, <laughs> they're the greatest generation for a reason because they're just not going to yeah. die. Oh, yeah, but like, <laughs> I don't. I don't even care when it comes to you know. I just right. oh, this it's uh, it's just so nice, and it's one that like I'll go back to and hum, and they make me feel better about you know. They're just little things uh, that I just 
I, I can't imagine. No, granted, if you never, now she never saw the story as a, as a film and certainly not as a musical. She, she right. did not think it was going to translate. So automatically there, you're going to have issues, especially because like a, not a film is one thing, but not a musical film is a whole. It's a, a really a different ball game. It's a very different ball game. And so it's that idea. And I, I feel bad also because like history is told by the victors and mm-hmm. entertainment is none the different. And I definitely call Disney the victor in this situation. Absolutely. Um, because also she only had one child. She wasn't married and she, it's a wild story um, for being such a practical woman. She uh, believed in astrology and Zen mysticism and listened to an astrologist and adopted a child in her forties because he said to her, like her astrologist was like, go adopt a child. He will have a twin, but you should not take the twin only adopt one of them. And she did. And then she traveled most of her late life to, uh, explore and learn about Zen Buddhism or Zen mysticism, which is holy moly fascinating to me. I, I'm going to continue to do research on her as a person because I she's fascinating to me. Well, and what's so crazy is that, like, you know, all these points that you've brought up about her like qualms with the movie, I have like I took a little note and I was like, it seems like she doesn't love the more, you know, I'm going to say, quote, magic parts of the movie, mm-hmm. these kind of like mystery, magic-y, mm-hmm. really light and airy parts of the movie are the things that she seems like she has the most issue with, including the score. Yeah. But as like a human being, she sounds like magic and maybe even like, you know, dark magic was a really, a very real part of her life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, so yeah. It, it's, it, it's a really interesting contrast to think that what's bothering her the most about the movie is the things that like maybe she's holding more closely in her own life. Now, having said and, that, obviously the things yeah. that she's kind of, you know, looking for and doing and, you know, mysticism and stuff is not exactly the same <laughs> as, you know, singing and dancing with penguins, but... Um, it's true. <laughs> and you know what? That is very true. Or, you know, in the musical, singing and dancing with a naked statue, it happens. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard. And she always described Mary Poppins as a magical unknown. The character is a magical unknown. And I think so much of that is personified in, in her searching. She's, she spends her life searching and... You know, I ultimately, I love Disney, but I, you know, I'm going to be one of the first ones to always bring up maybe some not so ethical things or like things that maybe we would do better now, or I would hope they would do better now. And sure, this is one of them. And I feel like her treatment, because I feel like we're not getting the whole story. And now correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, that like, I don't, I, in my search, I didn't see that her child wrote a book or has written an autobiography about or a biography about her. Sure. Which I would, I would love just a little more perspective of her and her life than, because like I believe I never saw Saving Mr. Banks because I knew yeah, from the beginning. Well, I knew from the beginning that it wasn't going to be quite accurate, and mm-hmm. I yeah, I, I, anything I, biased like that is not going to be. I've, so hit, a, I've hit a point in my life that I think we need to not tell the incorrect versions of stories we need to tell this is my issue with greatest showman i i I, as fun as it was i we need to not tell the incorrect versions of history 
because right. that hurts the people who were hurt by that history. And maybe in this situation, Absolutely. it was only P.L. Travers and maybe the Disney Corporation was looking at it as this is this one woman. She's going to hate everything because because she even asked Walt at one point. She's like, she saw an early screening and went, okay, when do we start cutting? When do we start tweaking this? And she was very amicable because she was on set for the whole process. She was a... Uh, she was uh, um, uh, a reference for it and sure. they just kind of went no 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 you're done and she wasn't allowed to touch it which you know probably would have gotten really messy in the end but um right. just because people people who don't do film suddenly wanting to um edit film and and call the shots on visual storytelling because visual mm-hmm. storytelling is very different than I'm than different writing it on a page well mm-hmm. it's even when we look at theater and film how we tell a story in theater is not how we tell a story in film no, um, no, not at all. And and so it's it's this is one of those qualms that I think in 2019, 2020, we need to address because I will always love, you know, the Walt Disney Company and the Walt Disney films in and out. I love them. They're a huge part of my life. Um, but I think we can question why people make certain ethical choices and also understanding that the 1960s were very different than we are now. And there's a different expectation um, and I even, I even wrote today that, uh, oftentimes Disney is a difficult company to love and support because questionable creative decisions, uh, oftentimes affect real people in real ways. And maybe mm-hmm. it was just this one woman it affected, but, uh, and while I love the things that Travers disliked, I can't imagine being the creator of a character and a series of books and not liking how it turned out or how the world and new viewers are going to see this for the first time. Right, exactly. You know, I think I think the thing that's holding me back about, uh, you know, imagining the kind of reparations that P.L. Travers might deserve for the way that Mary Poppins was you know, presented, it's just, you know, I think nostalgia is extremely powerful. So powerful. Like, and and who's to say that if they had done it by the book, it wouldn't have been just as enticing. But at the same time, like, you just can't know, you know, it, right. at what point does the creative license give you the room to say, you know, if we had done it exactly had the book had done, would it still be considered the kind of marvel that it is? Right. I, you know, I think right. that, it, unfortunately, these are questions we can't answer. I yeah. do think that to the point that you were making where it's like, if P.L. Travers was the only person that this affected, like, as the creator of the character, I think that's enough. However, you know, and again, I say this with the, like, you know, with the understanding, I I have not read the books. I do I cannot speak to the differences from the books to the movies. But I think that like you know there there is a truth to like if you've given creative license to someone to make these changes, then you have you have to kind of leave that space. Now I think it's a different discussion whether or not that she actually gave these creative licenses and Mm -hmm. what they did with what she Mm -hmm. believed she was giving them. Because as a general rule, I think we should always believe women because people don't. Agreed, (laughs) agreed, agreed, agreed. (laughs) um, Right. um, I, uh, I so wish that her kid has like some sort of account of what she thinks of this or thought. I don't think she's alive, right? No. No. Yeah. Um, I, uh, 
Yeah, I no, she, she, imagine. I believe she passed away in the 1990s. Well, she was writing until, what did you say, 84? Oh, yeah, 1996. At 96, she died. She was born in 1899. She had a very long life. Um, wow. Well, she was alive long enough. Cameron McIntosh started the process of getting the rights for the musical in 1993. So right. I knew this, actually. So, and she, and so we'll talk about this in a little bit, that she said that no one who worked on the movie was allowed to work on the musical, which... He broke a little bit because uh, I believe the one Sherman brother who was still alive came in as a consultant and worked on some more of the score. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was a huge part of her life. And uh, it uh, it's uh, it's it's really hard. It is. Um, yeah, it is difficult. To, I also think it's an interesting. Yeah, I, I I don't know how she would have been able to. I mean, if the I, I mean, if the intention was to do the Disney version of the musical when she sold the rights to the musical, I don't know how she imagined she was going to get that to work out unless you were going to do like you know, for lack of a better way to describe this, like the Yeston Kopitz Mary Poppins. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, well, I th- it's, well, it's I th- not. I think what had to be acknowledged is that they had to do the Disney version, um, but that she could make that statement of like, uh, that she felt she was mistreated so that she, and she also said that, uh, so I'm reading it right now that, um, her, her stipulations were that she, there had to be an English born writers, um, and that no one from the original film production was allowed to be directly involved. This specifically excluded the Sherman brothers from writing additional songs for the production. Um, however, the original songs and other aspects of the 1964 film were allowed to be incorporated into the production. Um, these points were even stipulated in her last will and Testament. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, it is. I mean, but I don't blame her because, she sounded like a deeply, um, deeply, uh, conflicted woman and that living with this for so long really probably meant a lot of things for her and really, really affected her life. Um, absolutely. Uh, I just, um, yeah, I'm having a lot of hard time finding things about her son, whose name was, was his name was Camillus Travers, um, but was the grandson of W. B. Yeats, which I think is interesting. Um, uh, I uh, this is a hard one, and I want to go with her, but I also know how important this film is to billions of people, and I think we can. Right. We're at the point where. It's this idea of like taking in film as a capitalist consumption. Like we we are yes. consuming things that are made in a capitalist, and there's no ethical way to kind of consume things under capitalism, especially with the way you know Disney owns everything. Yeah, um, truly. <laughs> so and it's uh, it's hard. It's 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 very hard. But um, I, yeah. I yeah. mean, the thing is, like any anything that you're like uh, art that you're consuming that's coming from any sort of production company like this like you know if you're if you are deeply analyzing it and not looking at it through the lens of that then you know you're kind of starting off on the wrong foot in the first place but i think i think that that's 
I don't know. I think that's 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 a whole other podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, apparently her son dealt with lots of alcoholism because he was separated from his brother who came looking for him when they were 17. And um, he died at 70 from excesses of alcohol for most of his life in 2011. Um, so Yikes. he didn't even really have a por- time to live a portion of his life without his mother around. Yeah, so that, yeah. that in its own reason yeah. could be why he didn't want to write a story about her life because it would have mm-hmm. been difficult and you know anybody who's listening who is the you know an adult dealing with being the child of an alcoholic it is a very difficult journey um that affects your whole life and we're just now starting to talk about it so maybe i understand why uh so anybody out there listening you're looking for a fun life project this could be a fun one let's uh let's chat about it let's let's uh let's start working with all whips and dreams it could be actually a really fun podcast where you tell the life and times of pl trevors um but let's let's shift back to the legacy because to Mm -hmm. me that's what's really important and travers is always credited with being the author of mary poppins it's part of what was expected and till her death she wouldn't like the films and how it presented her characters but it left a lasting legacy of generations of viewers. And I, mm-hmm. that I, you know, I credit to her because while Walt Disney made the film, she created this character. It was her life. Yes. And that legacy is she's never going to die because of Mary Poppins as long as Mary is Absolutely. living. And honestly, you kids can go into Disney World, Disneyland in five different continents and they can meet Mary Poppins every day. And I think yeah. that's magic. I think that's so cool. And she's just beautiful and stunning, and I love it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Theme, uh, talking about the themes of this piece, we talked about it a little bit. What do you think works most for you in this play? What sits in your soul, or the, the movie, not the play, what sits in your soul kind of when you're, do- when you're done watching? What lives with you uh, about that this movie kind of creates? Oh, that's a big question. Um, yeah, the, I think... Yeah, you know, it's. I think what sits with me is just the value of connection. Mm-hmm. I think Mary in the movie is this like really. She's you know if if we're kind of considering love and connection to be these like kind of ephemeral, untouchable, and very real qualities of human existence, I think that she's kind of a, a, a personification of the glue that those two things kind of make between like family and you know others. So I, I think that the thing that I you know when I when I have watched Mary Poppins in its entirety and I you know. Credits are rolling. I think I'm left with a, a lingering sense of the importance of connection. I think I'm left with a lingering sense of completion and purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked earlier about this this wonderfully beautiful moment where you know she's she knows she's done her job and she knows she has to leave and and you know if you are an 8 year old watching mary poppins you might not understand the gravity of like you know having 
you know, getting to a point in your life where you've completed that chapter, where you've completed that purpose and you have to move on. And, you know, you can always go back and, you know, reminisce and be nostalgic and hold dear whatever that thing was. But like, the fact is like times are changing and, you know, you are Mm -hmm. moving forward. There's a really incredible sense of like, I don't know, warming kids up to the idea of embracing change with mm-hmm. grace and purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, having said that, this is from the lens of an adult who's probably seen the movie 50 times. Yeah. But yeah. I think that that's really like, you know, if we're talking about the legacy of the movie, like that's not necessarily something I get from watching you know, The Little Mermaid, which mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. Little Mermaid. I also wanted to be Ariel when I was little. Ariel mm-hmm. was like my number one Disney princess. And, but I, you know, I never left Little Mermaid with a, a kind of a deeper sense of something that I couldn't quite grasp yet. Mm-hmm. I left watching The Little Mermaid going like, okay, r- rewind the VHS. I want to hear Under the Sea again. I want to hear Part of the World. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that there is a lot to be said for the breadth of emotion that just the subject of change can bring Mm -hmm. to anything, but especially in respect to like kids growing up and adults growing up and it's, yeah. I agree. And I think it also prepares people. And I didn't think about this till I was an adult that sometimes people are in our lives for a very short time. Absolutely. And that's okay. Sometimes mm-hmm. people can come in and change our world. We can change somebody else's and it's just a short time. And that's what happened here. Yeah. Um, this, this concept of I'll stay until the wind changes, which is such an, we want definites. We want, we want an answer to how long something is happening. Yes. And it's, it's such a cheeky thing. And we're like, Oh, that's so rude. Mary Poppins. But we're just like, Oh, because then we think about those times where you go outside after day after day after day and you can feel that there's no wind. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's stagnation. And just the fact that she comes and goes with the wind represents change and movement and growth and growing. And yeah, I think it's there's just so much. And that's there's a reason why. It's also like there's no question about how is this appropriate for my child to sit down? Like I, I if I had children which those poor, poor things, if I ever had children, you know, this would, this would be a movie from an early age. It'd be like, let's, let's, let's watch Mary Poppins. Let's, let's watch it. You know, it's cute. It's fine because it's deeply layered. And the older they get, the more there is to take away from it. And I feel like I still take away things from it so much. Um, And even like it it deeply influenced me to become a designer and work visually within theater because like those hand painted drops like, all of the hand-painted backgrounds are just Stunning. breathtaking, and the costumes are beautiful. And about as period accurate as we got in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there was a yeah. lot of, you know, they flip open a book and go, that looks about right. Where yeah, now right. we love a costume <laughs> drama, where, you know, we, we love a Downton Abbey and a Game of Thrones. Yes, uh, we and, do. And uh, The Crown. But, um... Yes. Yeah, I think all these things that subconsciously coded so much of my experience as a fan and as someone that devoured it. And actually, talking about something that really 
affected me. Normally at this part in the show, we talk about how the movie stacks up in 2019, 2020. And I yes. don't think we need to talk about that with this movie. No, I, I don't, don't see so. anything really, I don't see anything really problematic about this film. Um, uh, Especially with Disney films at this time, there's always one or two really aggressively wrong things now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll eventually get to, you know, the Asian cats and Lady and the Tramp and oh, the crows God. and Dumbo. We'll, ev- we'll eventually get there. Um, eventually. <laughs> or or Dare, or dare Even Bring do. Up Song of the South. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I think, I think it sits in an eternal pop culture. As yes. long as like electricity exists, and as long as we exist the way we do, mm-hmm. I, I don't see anything ridiculously problematic. And I think this movie is truly timeless. Yes. And out of all of the things Walt is remembered for, I think this is the thing that is okay for him to be ultimately remembered for um, in the positive. Yeah. Um, it's it's so beloved, frankly, that Cameron McIntosh, who anybody who doesn't know, theater, uh, you know, every, it's cool to like theater again. Everybody, you know, everybody knows Lin Manuel. We know Hamilton. Yes. We know, um, but Cameron McIntosh. It is a refreshing time. Um, Cameron McIntosh was a kind of prolific producer um, in the UK that's responsible for Phantom and Les Mis and all of these huge things. And he was massively responsible for musicals making the jump between London to New York and New York to London. And he brought, with Disney theatrics, Mary Poppins in 2004 and five to the West End and then to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and... They corrected some of the problems Travers had with the movie, a few of them. Sure. Um, And he, you know, we went over this earlier, that he made promises to Travers. And now, Meredith, I know you and I love this musical. Yeah. Love, love, love this musical. (laughs) Um, Very much. (laughs) Very much. You know, even when I lived in New York, people would come and go, let's see Lion King. And I'd go, let's see Mary Poppins. Um, They used to do, they used to do a $30 box seat. That I, when I was having a bad day, I would go and sit and I would pay $30 and see the show and I would cry through it. I wouldn't eat dinner, but I would have Mary Poppins. Because let me tell you, that (laughs) first time I saw the show, I I went to um, the American Musical and Dramatic Academy, formerly known as Scamda to a lot of people. Uh, (laughs) Shout out to all of my listeners who went to Scamda. There are a lot of us out here. Uh, But I had a particularly terrible day in one of my classes. I couldn't get anything right. I wasn't focused. And now as an adult, I know that I was... I was a little piece of shit at the time and <laughs> I was thinking I didn't need to work as hard as I did, but I was having a rough day and I just went and got a ticket to Mary Poppins and I had my four bags of costumes and props and dance clothes sitting around mm-hmm. me in that balcony on a Wednesday night and I sat through that show and I cried when Mrs. Banks sings me being Mrs. Banks, which mm-hmm. I think is such a transcendent moment. Um, and then I was on House Right uh, seat uh, the third the third kind of um, box seat box up and Mary Poppins flies out right and she is feet from me and she holds her hand out to me and then keeps going into the flies and I burst into tears and oh it is just God. it's forever I just always feel forever connected and I will forever I will go to any theater and see it I will work on any production oh. um, what do you think? about this version 
uh, against the film that really sits with you and why it's also kind of helped this kind of propagation and continued legacy of Mary Poppins. I just, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I think that the thing is like, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about like different mediums, just telling the story in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there is something just irreplaceable about theater in terms of like bringing energy and in this case specifically magic into a room Mm -hmm. full Mm -hmm. of live people who are sitting next to you because Mm -hmm. it's one thing, you know, for me to be a seven-year-old in my room watching Mary Poppins by myself and really still being transported with this very magical feeling. But it's another thing to be like sitting next to my mom and my sister and watching, you know, Mary Poppins fly through the audience. You know, I think that, you know, in terms of really pushing and like keeping the legacy of the show, I think it's just like, you know, uh, more reinforcing that there is value in magic and mm-hmm. dreaming, which I think both of those words kind of get thrown around in a way mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. it kind of just like tossed to the side as like kid things. I feel like this is a very mm-hmm. tired narration for me to be like, you know, oh, you got to believe in magic. And I don't necessarily mean it in that way. I think that it's just you know, there's so much we can't know. There's so much we will not know. And I think that there's something about being in a room full of people who are all agreeing for two and a half hours Mm -hmm. to say, Mm -hmm. we are going to embrace that we don't Mm -hmm. know. We're going to embrace Mm -hmm. that this is magic. We are going to embrace that this person is flying for no reason. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think Mm -hmm. that might, you know, speak more to the staying power of theater. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that it's at, at, in, entirely applicable to the same way that the movie is just as staying as the musical. Well, and something that the musical does in a way that I think is really interesting. One, Mary Poppins leaves at the end of Act One, which is something that does not happen in the movie. She yes. gets frustrated with the kids and she leaves. Yep. And Bert's like, oh, no. And the kids under automatically understand something terrible has happened and so this this sets a tone and that the musical mary is a little bit sterner than i think the the film mary um absolutely but also they they knew that like we they couldn't make jolly holiday work the same way that it worked in the film so we get that beautiful chalk drawing where we live in like the it is as a wardrobe person as a costume designer the the jolly holiday quick changes are some of my favorite where you literally go behind a flat and then reappear in a pastel costume and it's just it's beautiful so cool but it's also something the musical does and it's in the pinnacle song or the the penultimate song anything can happen if you let it which oh. is oh. i just i want to cry just thinking about it uh, which for the I, audience I've got, in like, the first moment <laughs> in my mind right yeah. now oh. Yeah, well, and like for the audience that didn't hasn't gotten the pleasure of seeing the large production that Disney produced, the umbrella, a giant version of the umbrella comes through the middle of the floor and all the chimney sweets are, are dancing around with lights and covered in star costumes. And it's it's not even that just if you, if you believe in magic, things will happen. It's, it's going further and saying anything can happen if you put the work into it, if you put the drive into it. And so it's setting that other tone of like, you have to set things into motion for yourself, but true magic can happen. And 
I, I that to me is just word. so mm-hmm. yeah it's just it, I think it's the same kind of through line of like this word of like people you know can I swear <laughs> yeah sure yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah people saying manifesting their own shit yeah it's the exact yeah. same thought process yeah yeah, I agree. Now, now I know you talked about a little bit earlier that you don't love the conversation shop scene with with Mrs. Corey and Super Kelly. Now, I know that is a more direct callback to the book and to yes. an original and also an original version of what was going to happen in the movie. There were several different ways. Jolly Holiday was originally a completely different um, mm-hmm. Sequence, um, and so this I believe is a callback to that, plus the books. Um, and uh, were there any other changes that you maybe just didn't quite agree with, but you think maybe work in the context of the show? Uh, it's uh, not really, and to be I, I to be honest, I think that the only reason why I don't love that as much as I like loved the one in the movie is just because because the movie is what I saw first. Is the truth. Yeah. Um, I think that there's just, again, you know, we talked earlier about the power of nostalgia. I think it's just that there was a part of me at the end of that number that was just like, no. Not Mm. not that I wasn't like, Mm. you know, totally into it and thought it was Mm -hmm. sensational and the choreography was amazing. Um, Brilliant. I don't know. I I use the word Disney-fied in Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. gentle way here but I think people will understand what I'm saying when like I I and not you know it was already Disney but like Mm -hmm. I think that there there was something about maybe like the book language in that moment that I was just like I I don't know there again we've talked about the depth and the the kind of mysterious quality of the movie it was a little sugary for me Mm -hmm. it was just just a if they had pulled it in maybe a tiny bit, just a hair too sugary. I think that's maybe why I was kind of like, "Mm -hmm." I see that. I can, I can absolutely see that. Um, and I'm like you though. I, have almost no other qualms with it at all. I mean, because there are right. even those things that, like, step in time where the movie is so prolific, but, like, I didn't think it could get better than that. And then they literally have Gavin Lee tap dancing around the proscenium, strapped to a metal plate and some things. He's upside down, hanging 25 feet in the air, tap dancing. It's Disney leaned in so wholeheartedly into what makes um, Mary Poppins magic that I, I just... I cried when I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. I sensational. And I'm glad so many I'm glad so many theater companies, small to giant, are doing the show kind of continually. Yes. Um but yeah, I just I love it. And now, you know, I'm hoping to eventually do an episode on the movie. It's it's only been about a year since it came out, so I want to give it some time. But last year in 2018, we had a Christmas blockbuster of Mary Poppins Returns, mm-hmm. which brought back a certain magical nanny to the screen for the first time since the original. Uh, how do you how do you think that stacked up with a new generation seeing also seeing a different actress play Mary Poppins? So as a, a, a Mary Poppins purist, I was incredibly incredibly skeptical. Me too. Um, however, I love Emily Blunt, and she got Julie's stamp of approval. So I was and like, so I, I can't Julie's, be angry. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that as somebody who loves the movie and watched the movie as a child, I went in with a certain air of skepticism. But I also, I, I took the pressure off myself as a viewer to expect it to be the same. 
I knew Mm -hmm. that there was, you know, uh, you know, especially in the difference of filming styles in the way that they, you know, they did have Lin-Manuel Miranda in the movie. You know, they did have these kind of like, you know, hot button, again, like cool musical theater people. Like, I think that they, they did a really beautiful job of like, paying homage to the original style of the movie while also acknowledging that like it just could not be what the other one was especially not with julia not with dick van dyke it's like it wasn't going to be what it was going to be but i don't think that they i don't think that they approached the film from apologizing for that i think they were like no this is what it is and this is the new thing and we are going to bring in these really gorgeous elements of what we did however many years ago at this point 50 or 60 almost like it's actually more than that oh my god i can't do math 60 64 to to, <laughs> to, That's a lot to of 2018 time. yeah it's you know, yeah you, can't, it, you know film has changed so drastically since then like i you know it would have been a disservice to myself and it's a disservice for anyone going in who has not seen mary poppins returns to think that you are going to get something exactly with the same sort of ephemeral quality. I do think that they did a beautiful job of keeping that feeling of inevitable, beautiful change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I appreciated that they didn't lean too heavily into CGI. I was really great. Yeah. I mean, some of it was, but I, I don't know. I appreciated that some of it was also like, more like when she drops back into the tub, mm-hmm. like loved the way that was shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the movie was wonderful. I had an incredible time mm-hmm. watching it. I enjoyed it. I, I yeah, teared up a little bit. That was beautiful. <sighs> I cried three times, like three yeah. different times I, from the, I, those first mm-hmm. moments. There were, yeah, no, I, when, she, the, when I you see her the first time, I, mm-hmm. I, I can't help it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like, oh, oh mine yuck. was, I gotta be honest, mine was earlier than that when Lynn really? starts the beginning talking about the streets of London and they pull back and it's 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 the digital versions of some of those original yeah. um, scenic paintings. I was done. Oh. Well, and then the magic of having Dick Van Dyke come back to play the bank the bank manager now that he's the appropriate age to play yes. the bank manager and he oh. dances his face off. And it's one of those things that for, and then I respected Julie Andrews's choice of not being in the film. Yes. I respect it. It made me a little sad, but like, that's just purely from how important she is to my life. But Angela Lansbury popping up was was the most wonderful. Well, but what was really nice is like they leaned into the digital composite for the Royal Dalton Bowl, which I, the, Mm. the the music hall, which I think is important. Um, uh, because that you know that's the animated portion, but they did go back to some hand drawn animation for that, which I think is yes. very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that. That's we got a little body. Mary got a little sexy. She got a little. She got I a little body. She got a little wicked. And but you know that's also the time and that idea of like who women in the 30s were and like Jane wearing pants and being an activist and yes. Michael being a single father who's grieving. I think it also they are so in touch with that the world is in a different place and the world we're grieving right now for a lot of things. Yes. And that movie allowed us to grieve, whether it's a grief, grief, a personal grief, a grief of what's happening in the world, a grief that we're losing our planet, but that she still gave us hope at the end. Yes. Um, 
where in the original Poppins, we were sitting in the 60s where we're doing really well. There is a giant yeah. future to be had and telling people to reach out and grab it. Yes. Also, you know, it, with the musical, we were about to hit a giant economic decline and yeah. people needed hope. I think mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things. Poppins represents so many of those things. Um, I mean... The Brits love popping so much; it's just revived on the West End right now. So it's, it's running know. with it's running with one of the original Mary's sisters, Scarlett Shreeland sisters, playing uh, really? Mary Poppins. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. I was. I really want to go see it, and it's not quite the same. They they redesigned a little, but um, sure. You know, I think I think we can't. You have to put the two movies next to each other, but I think just rawly comparing them to each other is a disservice to both films. Um, no, yeah. like how, you, and now how you didn't care for super Cali in the musical. I didn't, I didn't care for Meryl Streep and Topsy in this one. I think it added no. one more. I think it added one more moment we didn't need and a very long film. Yes. Um, but like we talked about, I love that Triple Light Fantastic was done in a soundstage. Yes. A lot of the movie was done on a soundstage, much like the original film was. Mm. And I think that really, yeah. And like that, those bathtub moments, there was they leaned back and they shot backwards down a slide. Yeah. Like it's a very cool thing. And so you know they combined that new magic and what Disney does. I mean, because if we're on the forefront of technology, it's in a Disney film. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I and too, they they did a really great job of, in the same way that they played to the strengths of the performers that they had in the original movie. You know, like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. how they Julie Andrews did all of her whistling because she was yep. a fantastic whistler. Mm-hmm. Um, Dick Van Dyke had like that whole soft shoe section with the penguins because mm-hmm. he was a fantastic tap dancer. Like they gave Lynn that whole section of that patter song like yeah song like i i appreciated that they went like this is the talent we've got we're working with this well like emily is a good singer but she's not a great singer but god god is she dynamic to watch so like you know i mean we can say a lot of we can say a lot of things about the end of the woods film but like she was so charming and you really liked her character and i i will always i will always watch her on screen she's so good um love her and she has a lot of those qualities that made Julie Andrews' performance as Mary also work well. Absolutely. Because um, it seems weird to bring up, but she and her husband, John, did The Quiet Place two years ago. And it there's so much nonverbal acting in that movie. And it is yes. a horror film. But it had a beautiful, rich story and a beautiful family element. And mm-hmm. that those were those moments where you're like, oh, she is a phenomenal actress. She, she can do these things in a way that, like, a lot of movie stars aren't the strongest actors, but they can sure. edit together a really good performance. She's someone who has beautiful nuances in her performance, and she just Absolutely. knows what she's doing and so you know i thought it you know it stacked up um and kind of lastly where we are in where it lives it was announced in um august of 2019 at d23 that the uk pavilion at epcot here in florida is getting a massive refurbishment and turning part of their england area into cherry tree lane and we're going to get a mary poppins uh uh some sort of attraction oh my which i I just love, I've been saying for years that that needs to happen because it almost looks like, it almost looks like Cherry Tree Lane from the movie and they're leaning into it finally, which I think 
you know, say what you will for what's happening to Epcot and what's happening to the parks. This idea of dropping IPs in places that they didn't exist before. But I think lean into it. Mary Poppins is obviously not going anywhere. And she already does meet and greets over there. She already does a meet and greet six mm-hmm. times a day in that area. So like, give right. us an attraction. Give it, give us something fun. I, you know, I'm, I'm excited for, you know, next two years is the, um, uh, 50th anniversary of Magic Kingdom, and then the year after we have the 40th anniversary of Epcot, and a lot of changes are coming, wow. and I'm I'm so excited. But yeah. I, I always end up being a little bit of an optimist with, with everything we're doing, so... I think that yeah. is a, a, such a smart decision. Such a smart decision. And, you know, I, the, part of the question that I didn't really answer before was, like, we talked about, like, what the new generation thinks. Like, I... I you know, I have no authority on any of this, <laughs> but if I did, I would be like so happy to give my stamp of approval of this movie for the younger generation. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that, th- I think that this is a wonderful representation of the magic that the first movie brought. And I think it's a great way to introduce a, a younger generation mm-hmm. to a movie that, you know, it was one thing for me in 1994 to watch a movie that was, 30 Mm -hmm. years old like that's not that's Mm -hmm. not out of the realm of possibility you know you think about movies that Mm -hmm. are 30 years old at this point which you know I think what Lion King is 25 yeah so that's so that's like Little Mermaid (laughs) no Little Mermaid turned we just did our Little Mermaid episode for the 30th anniversary so like Little Mermaid just turned 30 but Black Cauldron turns 35 this year it's those Beauty and the Beast turns 30 in in two years so like these are those movies of we literally have two generations between when they came out and when they yeah you know but can I tell you I went to Disneyland for the first time this past March and um, there they have free roaming characters in a way that we don't have in Florida and I was boarding the carousel because I wanted to ride. Julie Andrews has a horse that is her horse um, that Walt, oh my that, that they dedicated to her. And they told me I couldn't get on it and I didn't know why. So I sat right next to it and guess who walks out but Mary Poppins and Bert and they get on the carousel. Oh, that's so I, okay. Sweet. And if anybody follows me on if anybody follows me on Instagram, you know that I photograph everything at the Disney parks, literally everything to a fault. I couldn't get my camera out because I was freaking out so much that I was literally riding the carousel with Mary and Bert. And like, I know they're costume characters who are up holding a legacy of a company, but like the kids who were riding with us, and this was like a. Friday afternoon I think like so in March so not a ton of kids were around but those kids were so excited to like get off and have a hug with Mary Poppins and they know who she is like Mm -hmm. that's uh, that's a, these kids whose parents, you know, their grandparents watched it as children in the theaters. Right. So like they're they're two gen three four generations removed at this point. That it's just it is so it's truly Disney magic working in a way that like. I don't know. It's it's so impressive to me, and I, I love know. it. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> well, sensational. Well, Meredith, it has been such a delight to have you on the show today. And honestly, if any artistic directors out there are listening and are thinking about doing Mary Poppins, we've got your star right here. <laughs> give just me a call. Give her a call. She's ready. She's standing by the I phone am beyond now. Beyond ready. Um, are there any upcoming shows or projects that you're working on that you'd like to plug for the audience? Nothing that is. Uh, this, 
not really. I have okay, some things fine. that I'm I'm Brewing hoping up. to mm-hmm. announce mm-hmm. excitedly, but <laughs> nothing official. <laughs> So, so great. Crazy. So if, if people are interested in knowing more about you and, and where they can see you on stage and things, where can they find you online? Um, I have MeredithKateDoyle.com. That is M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H-K-A-T-E-D-O-Y-L-E.com. Um, but you can also follow me on Instagram at MeredithKateDoyle. And that's it. Great. Well, Meredith, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This was sensational. Of course. So much fun. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Dole Whoop and Dreams podcast. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our little show. Remember, we're an independently produced show, so your five-star ratings and thoughtful reviews help us get higher in the charts and get recognized. After some thought and some consideration on some upcoming bonus content, I've decided that it's just not right to keep up a paywall for all of our dreamers, so we've taken it down. So in future, our bonus content will be available wherever you listen. But if you like what we're doing, you can hop over to our Patreon and pledge just $2 a month to let us know you care and help us continue to bring you programming that you love. If you want to continue the conversation after today's episode, check out our Facebook page to engage with other dreamers just like yourself. And to see what we're doing for future episodes, find us on Twitter and Instagram now. Next time, there's only one more sleep till Christmas when I'm joined by Broadway superstar Bren Williams as we talk about the eternal Christmas classic, The Muppet Christmas Carol. I'm so excited for you all to hear our episode. It is so fantastic. Now, until next time, dreamers, may your days be filled with dull whip and dreams. (laughs) 